Now let's turn to God's Word, to the New Testament letter of the Romans. And Romans chapter 2 and from verse 17. Now where we're at in this is that uh, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, a church which has experienced its own difficulties, a church that was uh, at the uh, heart of, of course, the Roman Empire. And he's written saying to them he wants to bring them the gospel, and he's writing it uh, to them as well. And he begins in a what would seem a strange way because he talks about how God's judgment, God's anger against humanity is seen in the Roman society and culture. And he then turns uh, to the churches, those who are of a Jewish background, and saying to them, well, your religion won't uh, save you. And he talks about how God's law is written not just uh, in the hearts of, um, not just on His Word, but also in the hearts of all humanity. And so verse 17, we read this, page 1129. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Well, um, it is good to have people here from different parts. Um, we're glad that you're visiting us in Dundee because we need your help, because according to the Courier this week, uh, people in Dundee are the most stressed people in Scotland. So I don't know if you're from Dundee and you're feeling stressed, but that's where we're at. That's who we are. We are stressed, apparently. We're not the most stressed in Britain. That's people in London. So if you're visiting from London, tough. You came on holiday here from one stressed city to another. How you manage stress and what we think about what stress is. I mean, that survey is, was done by a, a magazine called Totally Money. So you can guess where they're coming from. Um, lack of money and so on. But stress is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I forget things because of stress, so that's my excuse. So you come into church and there's things, okay, we need this person, we need that person, we need this. This is, you can get quite stressed doing stuff like that. You can be stressed in terms of your health, so you're worried about things. Stressed in terms of relationships. Now, Hitchin and Janie are getting married. Totally stress-free experience, Okay. Just remember that. There is no stress in a wedding. 
but it can be, a, it can, it can be very, very stressful. Um, the three things that cause the most stress are, of course, death, um, losing your job, and moving house, apparently. Uh, they are reckoned to be the most stressful. Your work can cause you stress, and church can cause you stress. But what about our relationship with God? When we look at this, is this going to add stress to us? In fact, some of us will have, we all come with many different things. Uh, there may even be people, be people who say, keep religion out of my life. Well, I suspect you wouldn't be here if that's what you were thinking, although you may be, you may just have come um, for another reason. But it is really important. The way you deal with stress, you, don't, you can't ignore it. The way you deal with it is face up to the reality. And it's really important in terms of the Christian faith, in terms of where we're at in our relationship with God, that we understand what it is about. And the passage we're looking at today deals with possibly the greatest misunderstanding about faith. And what amazes me about this is you can be in a church where the gospel has been preached for decades and you could have attended for decades and I could come to you and ask you about Christianity and you would still make this mistake. What is the mistake? The mistake is this. That in religion, we often rely on externals. We do this in different ways. So, for example, I remember a man, it was a bit of an extreme case, but he swore like a trooper. He never went to church. He hadn't a clue about the gospel, but he assured me that he was a Christian because he never hung his washing out on a Sunday. I'm not sure he ever hung washing out, but um, that's what he said. He would, he, he would get blind drunk and it wouldn't bother him. But if washing was hung out on a Sunday, because that was the way he was brought up, and that's what he thought religion was. Or there are those who are brought up in, very often brought up in the Catholic church, but also in some Protestant churches, who argue that because they've been baptized, then they have a special relationship with God, and providing they don't deliberately reject it, they're okay. It's why some rush to have their baby baptized before, when the, the baby is sick and dying, because they say, well, we've got to make sure they get into heaven. But that's the externals. The Jews were like this with circumcision, which is why Paul is, 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 is dealing with this, because they had basically said, we've got the law, we've got circumcision. That makes us special, and it makes us different. And there was a sense in which Paul would agree with that. But he now deals with that, and he deals with where this, this big issue... Now, we're going to be talking about the Jews and circumcision, and most of you are not Jews, and most of you will not have been circumcised for religious reasons. You may have been circumcised for other reasons, but we won't go there. Um, we don't need to know. So, circumcised for religion, we are of the circumcision. It was a ritual that was done to mark the Jewish people, well, in particular, obviously, the males, because female circumcision was not practiced in that culture. And it was done to mark them as a sign that they belong to God's covenant people. So, let's just go through this, and you'll see how this applies to our lives. Although we may not be Jews, there, is a very, there are very similar traps and dangers for us. Verses 17 to 24. It's one long sentence followed by a scriptural quotation. And what Paul does is he lists the advantages of being a Jew. 
First of all, you get to call yourself a Jew. Now, here's an important thing to understand. When the term Jew is used in the Bible, and actually today, it doesn't mean the 12 tribes of Israel. It means Judah. The, lost, the other tribes are lost tribes. We don't know where they are. I was hitchhiking once, and I got picked up by a doctor from Stornoway who told me that he believed that the Celts, the Scots, were one of the lost tribes of Israel, and that, you know, the queen sits on the throne as the Lion of Judah and so on. It was really one of the most bizarre things. It's called British Israelitism. Um, it really is weird, but he was, he was an intelligent guy. He was a doctor. Uh, you usually are quite intelligent. Um, Mr. Harrison would agree with that, I'm sure. Uh, and, you know, and yet he thought that. But these, the Jews here, were the tribe of Judah. And it was great to be able to call yourself a Jew. He also then says, you rely on the law. You have it in it, the embodiment of truth and knowledge. The Gentiles have natural revelation, but in the Mosaic law, the Jews have the revealed will of God. You are instructed by God's law. And they rightly took that seriously, and they rightly valued it and revered it, dare I say, much more than many professing Christians do with the Word of God today. You boast about your relationship to God. They have this deeply felt pride. It was their identity. It's like some of you are really proud of being Scottish. That's it. You're Scottish. And that's enough. You know, that's your identity. Other people take their identity from sexuality. Other pe- we had the, the gay pride marches and so on. Well, just pride in my sexuality. Other people take their identity from their family or take their identity from their job. And many will take their identity from their religion. Now, in the Bible, there's a right and humble boasting about God, and there's a self-righteous wrong boasting. I'm not sure many of you would do this, but those of you who are members in this church, if you were to say, I'm a member of the Free Kirk, I'm not sure how many people have boasted uh, like that, but you do find that, that that's what people do do. And that was what was happening here. There were people in the church saying, I'm Jewish. I am of the tribe of Judah. So I don't fit in with your earlier description of the Gentile pagans and the way they behave. They know his will. They approve of what is superior. They claim the right to teach. Now again, we need to understand what is meant here because in our culture, I don't think it's so immediately obvious. In this society and in Jewish society at this time, teaching and worship went together. The synagogue was a place of worship and teaching. The law, God's law, was both the center of education and the heart of worship. And again, I think they were right in that. And I think that's reflected in the best eras of of Christianity. And we live in this world where there's a perverse thing just now where people say, well, You go to church to worship, and then you go to university or school to be educated. But if your education is not based on the Word of God, it's pretty well useless. It's why all our major universities were founded on that basis. You you find scriptural things, you know, like like Glasgow, uh, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the words. And, you know, it it, it is, we need, and again, when with Timothy, um, being dedicated and his 
parents promising to bring him up. The, the, the center of education is really what's taught in the home, what's taught in the church, uh, and what it's based on. And I think there are just vital lessons for us today. Philo, who was a Jewish scholar and a contemporary of Paul around this time, wrote this. Every seventh day, there stand wide open in every city, and he's talking about the Mediterranean, in the whole of the Mediterranean, thousands of schools of good sense, temperance, courage, and other virtues in which the scholars sit in order with ears alert and with full attention. So much do they thirst for that draft which the teacher's words apply. And those of you who are teachers are going, if only. They sit full alert, ears, because they want to hear, they want to understand, they want to grasp. And that, by the way, is one of the most extraordinary things about the Jewish people. How have the Jewish people survived? They have been persecuted for thousands of years. They have been massacred and killed and holocaust and tried to assimilate and everything else. And one of the reasons that they have survived is this, this absolute dedication to education based upon the Torah, based upon the Word of God, based upon the Mosaic law. He says, you are a teacher of little infants, because that's what you do. Parents have a responsibility to live out what they teach, but they do have a responsibility to teach. We've got, we're, again, we're creating this bizarre world where the government is saying more and more, we'll teach your children, we'll tell to parents what to do, and parents are more and more saying, right, we hand them over to you, you take them, you take them, you take them. But if you're a parent, it's your responsibility. Now, you call in all the help you need because you will need help. But nonetheless, it still remains their responsibility. And can I just throw in an aside here? It bothers me considerably that the education of children in the Christian faith is so dependent upon the mother and not the father. When the Bible talks about the father being the head of the home, it doesn't mean you're in charge. It doesn't mean you're the boss. It doesn't mean you're the guy who goes out to work. It doesn't mean that you say where you're going on holidays. It doesn't mean that. It means that you are responsible for the spiritual well-being of your whole family, and that includes your children. That's why it's so important for, for us to learn and to know. And Paul says to the Jews, you think you have the, you, 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 you think you have the right to teach. You say you're a teacher of little in, infants. But not only that, you instruct other nations, he says. Nations who have not been blessed with a clear revelation of God's will. And in this, you'll find so much of this in the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Or Isaiah 49 and verse 6. He says, is it, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So what Paul is doing is he's listing all the advantages of being Jewish. He's saying you've got this tremendous gift of God's word. You have been entrusted with the very words of God. You think of yourself as a teacher. 
You think of yourself as being the light of the world to instruct everybody, to witness, to evangelize. And then in verses 21 to 23, he enumerates how they have failed. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? And so on. Paul's not saying it's bad to have received God's law. He's not saying that they hadn't received God's law. He's not saying you thought you had it, but you didn't. He's saying you did and you do. But he's asking, what have you done with it? You've been instructed, you instruct. Except, he says, you haven't. You who teach others, do you teach yourself? The number one difficulty in my job is hypocrisy. Because I stand up and I teach the word of God and I try to teach it as accurately and to the best of my ability. But for me, these are really hard words. You've got to teach this to yourself. And teach in the sense of apply it and practice it. Now, you'll notice here something that's very strange and shocking. Or maybe you didn't notice, I wanted to point it out to you. Stealing, adultery, and robbing temples. Why them? Why mention these things? Because most of Paul's readers would probably go, we don't do that. We don't steal. We don't commit adultery. It's like me saying to you just now, you're a bunch of thieves. You're a bunch of adulterers. And you go rob churches. I haven't robbed a church in years, is what you would say. You know, some of you are thinking, I'll put my money back in the collection bag that I took out of it. No, (laughs) that's not going to happen. But why, why does he say this? F.F. Bruce talks about the robbing temples. Let me say that, by the way, deal with this one first, because it's the most difficult. What does he mean by that? He says, what Paul has in mind is difficult to say. Perhaps he refers to some scandalous incident like that of, uh, in the year AD 19, recorded by Josephus, when four Jews of Rome, led by one who professed to teach the Jewish faith to interested Gentiles, persuaded a normal Roman lady, a convert to Judaism, to make a large contribution to the temple at Jerusalem, but they appropriate it for their own uses. In other words, they were um, using religion to make money. And that is not the first time that that's happened. And it won't be the last time. If you want to make money, invent a religion. And if you want to exploit people, exploit gullible Christians. And you think I'm being harsh. There's a woman who has a massive following, who's a multimillionaireess, and who says that she goes up to heaven every week and she can take you there. And there are Christians who fall for this rubbish, pay her huge sums of money. So maybe it's that kind of thing that he's referring to. In fact, this particular incident, Josephus tells us that when the emperor Tiberius became aware of this, he expelled all the Jews from Rome. And that is tied in um, with this letter to the Romans. It brought the name of Jew into disrepute among the Gentiles. Look what the Jews do. They rob your temples. There's a possibility as well that what's going on here is that temples were being destroyed and um, people were going in and just taking advantage of it. So it's a big sin. So why is he accusing them of such big sins? Well, it could be, as C.K. Barrett says, that when theft, adultery, and sacrilege are strictly and radically understood, there's no man who's not guilty of all three. In other words... Although I could say to you, I I didn't actually steal anything today or this week. I haven't been pickpocketing. I didn't rob anything from a shop. In actual fact, it could be that the way that I run my business or the way that I've treated other people, it ends up being theft. 
Or I could say, I haven't committed adultery. Well, maybe not technically, but in the eyes of Jesus, if I've looked lustfully, he says that's committing adultery. So in that kind of radical understanding, which is Christ's understanding, it may be what Paul is saying here. I like what Luther says at this point. There's no Calvin today, but we're going with Luther. Um, The words, do you steal, also apply to the rulers and tyrants of this world who seize the possessions of their subjects, not indeed by force or open robbery, but by threatening those who do not yield to them with their disfavor and by refusing to help them when they are in trouble. So they say, we didn't compel them, but they gave us things of their own free will. Most certainly they did not force them directly, but by withdrawing from them their protection, they coerced them. So wicked is the mind of man. You know, the, the Christian church, again, in its best days, was always prepared to point out to rulers the responsibilities they have to all people and the corruption and the wrongness that is kind of theft. Now, it may be that that is what Paul is referring to, but I think it also may be even more than that. It may be that Paul is being realistic even about the church or about the people who would read this letter. And he's saying, you make a claim, but the reality is very different. A man called Rabbi Ben-Zaki about this time wrote of this, the increase of murder, adultery, sexual vice, commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife and other evils were reflected not only in the society, but also in the Jewish community and in the Christian church. See, there's a kind of fake understanding, false understanding of the Christian church. And it's when we we all pretend that it's all sugar and spice and all things nice. And we get so horrified and shocked when we discover that that elder committed adultery or this went on or that went on. And we're all, oh, this is terrible. Because we're holding up our hands going, isn't the world terrible? Isn't the world terrible? And then we're saying, aren't we great? And Paul is coming to, the, to the, the Roman church and he's saying to them, you're not great. You've got the law, but do you actually practice it? What do I have I here, says uh, the Lord in Isaiah 52, 5. For my people have been taken away for nothing and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Now I want to apply this to those of us who are Christians. Because like the Jews, we have the name. Christians, Christ's ones, followers of Christ. We have the Bible, and we are called to be witnesses, to be teachers of those who do not know. But what if God's name is, and the the thought of this horrifies me, what if God's name is blasphemed because of how we behave in contradistinction to what we claim? I think it's probably the number one reason I hear from people about why they don't believe. Suffering probably might be number one. This, this, come, this one comes fairly close. And it's Christians are hypocrites. Because we say one thing and then we can do another. So how many times have people seen someone head off to church and then they see the way that they behave in their business or the way that they treat their family or, or the way that they deal with their friends? And God's name is blasphemed. I remember a young man, a friend who 
professed faith, went down to the pub to witness to his friends, ended up getting blazing drunk and preaching to them drunk from the table. Uh, not the best witness in the world. Everyone had a laugh about that for years because they remember this stuff. That's maybe a bit of a, an extreme example, but there are other examples as well. God's name is blasphemed amongst the Dundonians because of the way that we behave. Therefore, Ezekiel 36, 22, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. We say we hold God in the highest honor. We sing about giving Jesus our all. The reality of that is not in what we sing here, it's what we do tomorrow at work. It's what we do tomorrow with friends and family. And that's what Paul is challenging us. Then in verses 25 and 27, he says, circumcision's got value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, it's of no good. Now, circumcision was a God-given sign. It wasn't magical, but it was a God-given sign. The teaching on it had developed so that some rabbis claimed that anyone who was circumcised would not go to hell and that those who weren't circumcised would. What Paul is doing here is he's applying the teaching of verse 6, which says God will give to each person according to what he has done. We're judged by what we have done. Now, as I said, circumcision was a sign and a seal. It was a good thing. But here's the key thing. There is no point in having a seal when there's nothing to be sealed. Supposing I have an envelope and it's got something really valuable in it. And let's say I was someone really important and I sealed it, you know, sealed with the, the queen or something. Um, and, you know, we, not to be opened, just protected. That's what the royal mail's meant to be, by the way. Your, your mail's meant to be protected because of that. But what if in that envelope there's nothing? The seal is useless. The seal's a, wa a waste of time. You can have the signs, but if you don't have the thing that's signified, then the sign is useless. And what Paul says here is that Jews who break the law lose the value of their circumcision. And he, he, he challenged, now remember that Paul used to preach circumcision, according to Galatians 2. Now he challenges it. Those who are not circumcised but keep the law are to be regarded as though they were. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a bold statement. And what he's saying is this. Circumcision minus obedience is uncircumcision. Uncircumcision plus obedience is circumcision. Instead of the circumcised sitting in judgment on the pagans, Paul says these pagans who behave in this way, who keep the law, they sit in judgment on you. Now, he, again, he's not undercrying the value of circumcision. He's pointing out what it means. And he's saying that the law demands those who hear that they give an obedience which they cannot give. It's not saying just follow your conscience and do whatever your conscience says because um, our consciences can be seared as, as with a hot iron. And by the way, that false religion is one that exists. You just do your best. You do what you can. You do what you understand. That's another aspect of false religion. You don't, you're not saved through your religious rituals and you're not saved through doing your best. Chapter 3, verse 20, puts it very starkly. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. I, I do want you to grasp this. 
please never understand Christianity as being do good and you'll get to heaven. And never understand it as be baptized and you'll get to heaven. That is not Christianity. And that's why in verses 28 and 29, he really gets this radical, radical teaching. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely one outward and physical, nor a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. Who really is a Jew? Who really is a Christian? See, on the basis of this, I would be prepared to say that I am a Jew. Because I, for me, I, my faith is in Jesus Christ. And let me explain what all that means. Who's part of the people of God? The point is that if you are relying on religion and religious ritual or relying on doing your own bit, then you'll fail. The Jews failed and you will fail. We fail because of our nature. We fail because we just can't do religion the way that God wants. It says here, God gives us his written code. Um, That Greek word is grammar. So guess where we get the word grammar from? Um, As Thanos is very good at reminding me about how all the good words in the English language come from Greece. Well, this is one of them. Grammar is grammar, the written code. Actually, what I find quite funny here is that Paul's grammar in this uh, sentence is appallingly bad by Greek standards, apparently. Uh, So I am told. But he doesn't care about the formal grammar. He's concerned about the grammar, which is the written code. And what he's saying is this, is we need the pneuma. We need the spirit. The written code without the spirit just doesn't work. The Bible without the Holy Spirit just doesn't work. Some people will say, you know, David, why do you bother with church and stuff? It's just a waste of time. The answer is, you're dead right. It is just a waste of time. I could stand up here and talk till the cows come home and it won't make one way of difference to you, me, or anybody else unless God is present by his spirit and God's spirit applies it, which is why some of you will hear God's word and it will just go, and others will hear and it will go, whoa, right in. We need a new nature. We need a radical change. We need, as Jesus said, to be reborn. We need regeneration. Now, that's what the Old Testament taught. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. But circumcise your own heart. You can't do that. Circumcise your flesh. That can be done. How do you circumcise your heart? Is it kind of like beat yourself up, make yourself feel guilty? No. How do you baptize your own heart? You can't. Jeremiah 4 again, 22. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. Young Timothy doesn't understand a word I'm saying to him. You don't understand a word of God's word unless God applies and takes it and by his spirit does that. And that's what he promises. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is why the gospel is such good news for everybody. Because there'll be somebody who'll come in and they could be sitting in here today and they'll go, I've never been in church before. I'll never get this. And God's spirit just, boom. 
and open up your mind and open up your heart. And that's what we believe. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to this spirit coming. Jesus fulfilled it. That's why Peter told the Jews at Pentecost, the promise of the spirit is for you and your children. So you see, becoming a child of God is not a matter of religious liturgy or ceremony or a birth or of having the law of God, but of becoming a new creation through Christ. The ceremonies and the word are used by the Spirit to aid that, but they're not it. You know, this last phrase, such a man's praise is not from men but from God, is very revealing. And here's why. The Jews were named from Judah, as we saw already. Judah comes from the Hebrew term for, for praise. And what Paul is saying is this, is real Jews are those who are circumcised by the Spirit, born again, renewed. And your praise comes not from your religious observations or, or observances. You're doing good. Your praise comes from the fact that God's Spirit has worked within you and created a new life. And that's why some of you are here and you've not been Christians for long and it's just such a strange thing because there's something in you that wasn't in before and you know that because you like things you didn't like before and you dislike some things that you did like before because you find yourself changing and it feels almost terrifying. What's happened? Have I become all religious? No, you haven't. It's far worse than that. Becoming religious is just putting on another shell suit. This is God working deep within and changing. And that's why some of you have got the shell suit of religion. You haven't got the heart. And you're in, you're in deep, deep trouble and, and needs to break through. Because Paul is saying a true Jew is not one outwardly and, and, and visibly. A true Christian is not one outwardly and visibly. But it's inward and invisible. The true circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. It comes from the spirit, not the law. It wins the approval of God rather than human beings. Stop puts this beautifully. Human beings are comfortable with what is outward, visible, material, and superficial. What matters to, to God is a deep, inward, secret work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that's why in heaven, you will be utterly shocked at some of the people who are there and some of the people who are not there. Oh, they were really religious and really holy. No, they weren't. They were superficially religious and superficially holy but I never saw them. Yes, but when they heard God's word, they did respond. And I, that is, it's such a hard message for us to accept because it takes away all pride. It takes away this idea that we can do something. Look, we are dead in sins and trespasses, dead. And we need God to work in our life and we need the Holy Spirit <coughs> to regenerate us. Let me just finish by putting this a slightly different way. Religion never gets us there. It says, do this and you might live. Now, I don't care what country you come from. Every single country in the world has religion, which has clergymen and priests and whatever saying, do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll live. And we spoke about stress. Man, that adds so much stress to your life. You know, it's quite funny, at Gordon's funeral, some of the um, clergymen, not clergymen, that's 
a Freudian slip. Some of the media, some of the journalists um, were speaking to me afterwards and they said, this was not what we expected at all. They said, it was so relaxed. How could you say that to Alex Salmond? How could you, you know, <laughs> it was, they said it was so relaxed. And I said, well, what, what did you expect? And they expected a lot of ritual and they expected, I don't know, just different things like that. But when Jesus says to us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, me, should not perish but have eternal life. That's just something, when you, when, if you grasp it, you understand it, and you apply it, it's such a wonderful thing. Now, I'm going to say something else here about the, the funeral, because, you know, it's very personal for a lot of us, and um, for me, uh, it was the integrity of Gordon's life that shone out in, in so many different ways, but it was the gospel. Now, we had... Um, there was a bishop prayed, Bishop Vincent Logan. He's a lovely man, so this, I'm not saying this as a personal thing. But when I listened to his prayer, I just thought, oh, you've just demonstrated the difference between, you know, Catholic theology and what I would call biblical theology. Now, there's lots of things we have in common with the Catholics. And if you're Catholic background here, please don't uh, take this as a personal attack. But in this area, the Catholic Church has got it so wrong, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Because he prayed that we'd be called from this world, that, you know, that Gordon had been called from this world. We ask that you bring him safely home to your kingdom. May he give him a, be given a place at the eternal banquet of life and share in the joy of Christ's resurrection. Cleanse him and all the faithful departed from their sins and grant them the fullness of redemption. But we weren't there to ask for that because that had already happened. We were there to celebrate that Gordon was at rest and at peace, didn't need to be cleansed of his sins anymore. He'd already been cleansed from his sins. And I just think of the enormous stress that comes across a family when you, you are told, well, your loved one has died, but they're not in heaven, and you have to do this, 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 and this to eventually get them out of purgatory into heaven. Now, that causes stress all the time. Whereas, what the gospel says. Now, I understand the reasons for it, and there's a whole range of different things, and, and you know, please do take this in the right way, but I just think it, 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 it's taking away from the joy of the people of God when we teach that, because when you trust in Jesus Christ, you get eternal life. Supposing you're not a believer, and you pray at the end of this service to follow Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, right, hang on for a few years, then when you die, and then you go to purgatory, and then there'll be a lot of stuff happening, and then maybe you'll make it. That's not what he says. He says, you have eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Whoever believes in me should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's such a relief in all the stresses of life. Some of you who get very stressed about things, let me apply this to those of you who are Christians. You really do need to take a chill pill. Because most of the stuff you freak out about is not going to last, and I wouldn't worry about it. What matters is you know Jesus, and he loves you, and he's died for you, and how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We're going to come to this more in Romans. When Gordon died, he passed from death to life. See, he's not the God. Jesus is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He didn't go to purgatory. 
The loss and the sorrow and the pain is for those who are left, but not for him. And that's why the thankfulness is that there is no more pain for him, physical or otherwise. And there's certainly not a ritual cleansing in purgatory. Why? Because we don't rely on religion and rituals. We don't rely on our baptism. We don't rely on our good works. We don't rely on our religious attendance. We don't rely on our denominational upbringing or where we attend. We don't rely on our nationality. We don't rely on people praying for us after we die. We rely on Christ 100%, totally, absolutely. If you become a Christian, you say, well, I'm doing this because I rely on David. Forget it. I don't, I'm sorry, I ain't carrying a single one of your sins and I am taking no responsibility for you in that sense. My sole responsibility is to tell you God's word and your responsibility is to believe it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That is what Paul is saying. It's by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. That is the good news. Paul comes to these people and he says, look, your society is in a mess. Your culture is corrupted. And you religious people who are sitting there going, we're not part of the society. We're pure. No, you're not. Your hearts are corrupted. You're in a mess too. Well, what's the answer? The answer is Christ and what Christ has done. And it's that gospel that turns the world upside down because it's that gospel that enables you to reform society. It enables you to love people and it enables you to care. It enables you to be free within yourself precisely because you're not trying to earn your salvation. You're not doing good works and putting a pound into the Oxfam tin in order to earn yourself some merit. You're not doing it because Jesus has already done it and he has already paid it all. And that's why for me, these verses are so important. If you read them, they don't immediately strike you as inspirational and life-changing. But for me, they absolutely are. Because they set you free. They set you free. Free from yourself. Free from your self-absorption. Free from society. Free from the sins of this world. Free from the fear of death. Free from, you know, All these things, they're there. It's not saying they take them away, not immediately. That only comes in heaven. But they they set you free from their power, the power and sting of death and the law. And that's wonderful and great good news. And so I just ask simply, those of you who are Christians, grasp it, lay hold of it, really believe it. Those of you who think you're Christians, but maybe you're not sure now, pray, ask the Lord to work in your life. And those of you who are not yet Christians, it's a gift and it's offered to you. Ask him for it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. Grant us the freedom that comes from your Holy Spirit, taking that word and applying it. May our praise be from you, not from human beings. And Lord, may the work that you do be deep and not superficial. We ask that you would have mercy upon us because we know that you are a merciful God. Enter our lives, forgive us and renew us. In your name we ask it. Amen.